This podcast is brought to you by Southbank Centre in celebration of the Hayward Gallery exhibition in the Black Fantastic. My name's Crystal Genesis. I'm a podcaster, journalist and arts and cultural curator. And I'm really excited to be bringing you these episodes spotlighting in the Black Fantastic. A series of conversations between musicians, writers and the artists exhibiting work at Hayward Gallery. We hear about their inspirations, how they approach their respective practices, as well as their own experiences of In the Black Fantastic exhibition. If you haven't seen this great exhibition yet, In the Black Fantastic is inspired by Afrofuturism, a culture aesthetic which explores the African, predominantly diasporic experience. Works by the 11 contemporary artists make up the exhibition, drawing on themes such as science fiction, myth, folklore and Afrofuturism to examine the times we live in while imagining possibilities for the future. The works range a medium from filmmaking to sculpture and digital installation, and the exhibition is put together by curator, writer and journalist Echo Eschen, celebrating artists who've touched on the theme of Afrofuturism in their work. This show features sculptor and visual artist Hugh Locke in conversation with sculptor and performance artist Nick Cave. Hi, I'm Nick Cave, artist living and working in Chicago. Hi, I'm Hugh Locke. I'm an artist living and working in Brixton in London. Welcome both of you, Nick Cave and Hugh Locke. You're both showcasing your work at Southbank Centre's Hayward Gallery exhibition in the Black Fantastic, which reimagines myth, science fiction, spiritual traditions and the legacy of Afrofuturism. In this kind of day and age, what do you think is the importance of incorporating Afrofuturism in your work? And also, what does it mean to you? You know, it's really sort of providing this sort of glimpse of the future and a way ahead. Uh, because I'm not one who draws anything. I just start making. And so I'm coming into this space, this way of productivity in a very organic, very sort of open a way that the work just starts to sort of evolve and it introduces itself and then it's here. And so what I'm sort of experiencing and seeing is something other than what I probably imagined because I don't really have any sort of concept of what that is in the literal sense. Mm, I mean, I, I can relate to that because I'm constantly looking to surprise myself. But the drawing thing, that's interesting you say that, Nick, because I draw a lot, hmm. but not for the actual work. I mean, sometimes I do mm-hmm. drawings, but they're scrappy little things. But back in the day when I was at college, we talk about 80s, 90s, yeah? Mm-hmm. If you're making sculpture, in inverted commas, it was almost like you had to make a maquette. You had to do drawings first. Right. Before, and it's like, hang on a second. What about organic development of something and the something just then being there, you know? You know, so the drawings I do are drawings for myself and out of my personal interests and personal subjects. But the drawings are not, this is what I will do. The drawings are to calm the brain, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if the drawings sort of become the research. 
Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's interesting that you're sort of talking about that because, you know, this role of improvisational is this sort of outer body kind of, for me, a way of operating that I am so interested in connecting to and through the process in result of something other. I hear that. I hear that loud and clear. At the end of it, it should be like, oh, so that's what happened, you know? Mm -hmm. And Hugh, so you're a sculptor, painter, you also do photography, and your pieces are influenced by Britain, colonialism, and nationhood, for example. But for listeners who haven't seen your work, what few words would you use to describe it, really? Or like, you know, themes that you think resonate in there? Could you expand a little bit more about that? Overloaded with history, basically. That's what it is for me. I always say that if I wasn't an artist, I would have been a historian. Mm. So I ended up being an artist with an interest in history and how did we get here kind of thing. But describing the work, that's where it gets very tricky because, say, for example, the ambassadors are four equestrian figures, a bit less than half life size, and they're encrusted with medals, real medals, actually. I make work so I don't have to describe it, put it that way. You know, these pieces are worked like miniatures. They're almost like jewelry at times. They're chopped up bits of Venetian mask in there, jasmineite masks, there's beads, there's... There's references to Rastafarian culture as well, isn't it? And when you rent yes, that ambassador yes. and on a horse and... Yeah, exactly. When you make something, you start in one place and where you end up, is somewhere quite different. These pieces come directly out of my uh, attempt, tragically failed because people ain't got no taste, what can I tell you? <laughs> my attempt to, to win the fourth plinth thing. I was going to have a figure, an old colonial figure loaded down with the baggage of empire. That'd be great. Yeah, that was going to be in the fourth plinth, you know? Why they didn't pick it, I don't know. You know? But I, got pretty, <laughs> I got pretty close, you know? Maybe it's just too close, isn't it? Too close on the nose. A, li- a little too close for comfort, man. Exactly. And Nick, what about you? You're an artist, you work in performance art and sculpture, and similar to Hugh, you repurpose as well historical items or take on history as well to create new work or new worlds or new interpretations. What few words would you use to describe your work? You know, I would say I'm posturing the sort of full human experience, joining together in unity as well as in the struggle. And so for me, when Hugh's talking about the sort of vast disciplines, to think about interdisciplinary artists that I think we both can relate to, it's not that I'm committed to any directive or discipline as opposed to finding the means necessary to support the idea. And so my work sets between sculpture, installation, performance, video. And it's because there is room for that. I sort of create the work within the space of possibility or that it doesn't sort of have only one way of operating and existing. Mm, I I, I could relate to that. I mean, um, because I'm trying to make things which I believe, which are real but real within their own terms. 
and could be seen in different ways, if you see what I mean. You come in and see, read it one way, and then you come in another time and say, oh, hang on a second, I missed that bit. And it can be read slightly differently. It's trying to create something that can be unpicked layer by layer, you know? I feel like you can see that with both your works as well. If you look at ambassadors as well, as you said, like there's a Rastafarian reference, you know, statues, mm-hmm. you know, it's like horses. It's almost like a, you know, almost similar to the Queen's Guard. I just want to ask you really quickly on that, actually, Hugh. Do you think there's also a bit of a satirical take as well? But then there's also references to the Haitian Revolution too. But um, tell me tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so definitely it's a, a sort of satirical, but satirical can sound like a trivializing of, of it. It's quite a serious practice. Like if it's a joke, it's a very, very serious joke. I mean, and the, the, the satirical thing, yes, there's something in that, but then I, I get wary of that because, I mean, I'm trying to deal with some difficult subject matter, but I mean, I can't live in misery. So that's the reason why it looks the way it does, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I mean, the same thing, I, I know from looking at Nick's stuff over the years, we maybe see the same thing in common whereby it's tough stuff. You're coming at it from a, a love of materials, you know? Yeah, but, you know, I, I find that to be interesting because, you know, one gets the beauty confused with unrest. Uh, yes. Yes. And, you know, for me, beauty and adornment and embellishment has always been the rebellious component in the work. It is how I have found a way to combat the civic and social unrest through the practices of adornment and protection and using the extraordinary upbringings about identity and social construct that has allowed me to sort of have this platform. I was raised with an awareness of the unrest, with the awareness of racism, but at the same time, giving full cage blanc to do and be as I need to be in the world. I'm sort of like, on one hand, fighting and responding to the unrest, but at the same time, knowing that I have also been given the tools to be extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier about beauty, I've been obsessed with beauty, but a broken form of beauty, you know, but, but you know, mm-hmm. because things are under tension. I'm thinking of pieces I've made a while ago, portraits of the queen made out of broken bits of plastic and, um, and plastic animals and stuff like that to make a seething ecosystem. That's a messy form of beauty, but it's a kind of pushing against something, you know, pushing against a system while I'm working away in the studio, you know. You're aware of what you're up against, basically, you know. You know, and how's the beauty defined? I mean, you know, the imperfection is beauty. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, I think about like that within making the work, not coming from a place of drawing and sketching. I also have to be open to the blemishes, the imperfections that happen along the way. And who's to say that they're not perfect? Exactly. When I work on something, I'm trying to make something which is meticulously unfinished. 
And it stops when I can't add anything more. Whatever I'm working on, whether it be a boat or a figure, it rejects stuff. And it's like, okay, fine, we reach an equilibrium here, so to speak, you know. And yeah, could you talk a little bit, Nick, about your sound suits piece as well? When you just talked about colour, it kind of reminded me that it's like very colourful. You've performed in it as well. But then it also responds to police brutality as well against black people. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Well, you know, imagery has always been sort of the future within my work. It is what is projecting and moving beyond racism and inequality. It's about power. It's reframing the Black experience in this sort of extraordinary way. It's sound. It's about projecting. It's about standing upright. You know, it is the new protest for me. It's about concealing and revealing. It's about hiding gender, race, class, forcing you to look at something without judgment. And so, you know, that first sound suit, I was building a sculpture, I thought. And then I realized that I could actually put this on the body. And so the moment that I put it on the body and started to move, it made sound. And so sound led me to think about the role of protest. In order to be heard, you got to speak louder. And yet I was building something that was something other scary. But that all came out of the description they gave of Rodney King, larger than life, worked out with prison weights. Well, I'm like, well, what does that look like? And I also want to talk about place as well, where you both are right now. Nick, Chicago has been your home and a place where you create work. How does community and learning feed back into your work? You know, Chicago has always been my sort of hub. It's the center of the world in which I've created, but it has allowed me a different kind of focus. I'm so interested in so many things that... If I lived in New York, I don't know if I would be as fully developed because of just all of the other interests within the arts that I am drawn to. So it has allowed me to kind of settle and sort of really focus on the work at hand. I'm a professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. But, you know, what's amazing for me about that is that just these new young minds, these are the next generation of creators that will have to find their way into the world. I would agree with that. I'm always very curious to see what the next lot are all about, you know? Yeah. You know, because it's just like, oh, right, so this is where you guys are coming from. Mm -hmm. And this is how you're reacting to the thing. Because I'm very aware that what they're dealing with here in London in particular is a lot tougher than what I was dealing with back in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. There are more opportunities on the one hand, but there are more people chasing them. It's difficult. And it's how people are maneuvering their way through tricky economic times, you know, trying to have a practice. It's really admirable. And Hugh, I want to talk about place as well. Your connection to Guyana is something that is highlighted in your work as well. But then also you live in London in a place called Brixton, which is sort of very Caribbean, historically black 
uh, place. And as a fellow Brixtonite as well, it's good to talk to you about this. Tell me a little bit about how the area of Brixton, but then also Guyana as well, how that influences your work. I came to Brixton back in the 90s to live in Brixton because I thought, you know, I wanted to live in a a black area, an area which had a a strong Caribbean and a strong West African feel as well. And um, that fueled my work. Just walking past the fish stalls, they're selling stuff for a particular Jamaican palette, you know what I mean? It was great, you know. It was very enriching, very enriching experience. It was the closest I could connect to Guyana in London. So Nick, you know, Chicago is rapidly changing due to gentrification, black communities being moved out. It's your base. It's where you work from most of the time. Has that changed the way that you create work? You know, I bought this property about six years ago, and it's about 24,000 square feet. But the front of the property is three storefronts where I can invite artists in. I can also respond to what is currently going on in the world, in Chicago. And so I think the most important thing for me was just securing a foundation in order for me to proceed forward with the work. Yes, the city is evolving. The city is pushing out black and brown people. But I have to create a space in order to respond to these acts. You know, I think about when George Floyd happened, I was so thankful that I had this building. And so to be able to have a platform to say something was probably the most remarkable and incredible move that I've ever made. Hugh, do you have any thoughts on that? Is there anything that comes to mind? I think I should move to Chicago. (laughs) 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 Because um, it's all about property prices, basically, over here. That's what affects things. So running a career in London, renting a large space, is basically quite tricky. I think artists are going to have to become more strategic about how they operate globally. As in, do I stay here or do I, do I move away? I mean, one of the tragedies I feel about Brexit was that British artists could not leave and go to find a career or a new life somewhere in, in, on the continent in Europe. And that is a problem. I think artists need to be start thinking more strategically, you know, particularly if you're going to be a sculptor. As a sculptor operating in London, you've got to really be thinking about how you operate because you have a simple issue of storage. It creates a lot of issues. Every time I talk, say things like this, I'm talking, thinking of the next generation of artists coming along. If I'm truly, truly honest, I see sculpture, the future of sculpture in a city like London as quite tricky, you know? particularly for recent graduates, because where are you going to make something which you can't store, you know? Um, Is there also an area that you want to cover that you haven't? It could be a topic or a material even. I pretty much am always five years ahead, still thinking about this whole space between 
public and community. And there's still vast communities that don't frequent museums, galleries. Mm, So I'm like, how do I find ways of getting the work into the public realm? Uh, The next bronze is going to be 16 feet. I have no place to put it, but I don't give a shit. It has to be made. That thing is that it has to be made. You know what I mean? That's true. We're operating as an artist. I can really relate to that. that, You know what? It has to be made. And I'm the idiot who's going to make it, you know? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I totally get it. I am not interested in limitations and boundaries in my practice. I need to have that space to think as freely and as widely as my mind possibly can imagine. I mean, I, I pretty much do everything. But the thing is, I've always got grand projects in my head, which require a lot of the financing. My brain is constantly working like an engine going, that would be great, that would be great. <laughs> And then you go back and you you deal with what you're dealing with right now, you know. But I'm constantly projecting ahead. It's really interesting that you both talked about looking ahead and also like creating. And Because I actually want to know, what do you do or like to do when you're not creating work or thinking about creating work? You know, for me, I sit in silence every day. In darkness, nothing. Just to get clear. But just imagine if we all had to sit in silence every day for one hour, what a different world we would be living in. The thing is, that type of meditation is the thing I should do, but don't do, (laughs) you know. (laughs) The churning brain, it needs to be slowed down, you know. I mean, I watch crap television, that's how I do (laughs) not very highfalutin, you know. But you do need just for survival, to slow the brain down, to shift it away. But even when I sit watching television, I'm looking at the wall behind the television <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, well, I can make this, I can make that. You know, <laughs> you know it, it's, it's not good. It's not, not a good way to live, you know. So when you both create work, it's kind of out in the world, right? In terms of how people will interpret it from critics to, you know, visitors. But if you could control it, what do you think would be the lasting impression that you want people to take away when they see and experience your work? For me personally, it's people to go away and start to think more about what they've seen. I'm hoping for things to play in people's minds. But the thing is, you cannot control, as you said in the question, you cannot control what people think. And you have to accept people will think whatever they will think. You can't control what people think. You know, for me, I'm a messenger first. And so I have sort of relinquished myself from all of that. And I have for a couple of decades. And so, you know, I'm just delivering a deed and moving on to the next assignment. Mm. But I will say the one thing that I hope that the takeaway is, is that I am always reframing the Black experience. Thank you so much, Hulock and Nick Cave, for taking part. I'm your host, Crystal Genesis. This show is produced by Jaja Mohammed and researched by Zara Martin. 
in the Black Fantastic exhibition is on at Hayward Gallery until the 18th of September 2022. Find out more about the exhibition at southbankcentre.co.uk and on Instagram at hayward.gallery and also check out their Twitter at Hayward Gallery.